morning, everyone. Uh, good morning to in the tent. Good morning to those joining us online. Um, we're in for a good time together, I hope. But just as we were singing the, the last song, uh, speaking of how God is such a good, good father, I wonder how would describe a father who would uh, take his only beloved innocent son and subject him or allow him to be subjected to a gruesome death. Um, one of the worst kinds of death that man could think up. I wonder whether we'd still call him a good, good father. But we call him a good, good father because we are standing on the other side of that death. We all were alienated. We were far from God. The Bible says like sheep we had all gone astray. And God took the punishment that we deserved and put it on his good, good son. And so now we can sing that he's a good, good father. It's not just a sentimental song, but it's the heart of this message. And so I just want to pray for us and thank God for what he has done for us. Yeah, Lord, it's, it's, it's so amazing that we stand on the other side of the suffering and death of your only beloved son because you didn't count it too great a cost to turn rebels into sons and daughters. And so, Lord, we do sing from all of our hearts and say you're perfect in all of your ways because of the perfect way of salvation you have made. It's incredible to us, and we're so grateful to be able to share in that. And Lord, this morning as we sit under your word, we thank you that we are sitting under an open heaven because Jesus has opened the way for us. We thank you that we can know that every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is made available to us because of Jesus. And so we welcome you. We welcome your works amongst us. We, we welcome you speaking into our hearts. We welcome you molding us. We welcome you removing the scales. We welcome you pruning us. We welcome you making new shoots to bud on each and every one of us. Come have your way, good, good Father. Amen. Great, so uh, for those who've been uh, with us or tracking with us, we are in the book of Acts at the moment. And uh, last week, um, Bonisi had kicked us off in Acts uh, chapter 9, and he was uh, giving us the story of Saul and how this, um, uh, whether we might call him legendary uh, persecutor of the church, um, encountered Jesus. And uh, Bo uh, so helpfully reminded us that uh, we, we, we don't come to God because we found him as though he were lost. No, uh, it is God who finds us, for we are the ones who are lost. Not only does he find us, but he loves us so incredibly. 
and therefore we can say he's perfect in all his ways. And Bo wasn't able to finish his, his message, uh, but he had mentioned that his, his last point was going to be that God sends us. And uh, I'm not going to try and preach his message because he's the best at doing that. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you to, to go back into Acts chapter 9 and finish the story about Saul. I'm not, I'm not picking up on Saul's story, but you'll see how great persecutor, how this man who was hunting the church by the end of the story, when you uh, get to Acts uh, chapter, thir- uh, I mean, uh, verse 31 in the same chapter, he is now the hunted. He's now the persecuted and he's uh, sharing this gospel. But we won't explain everything in the words of one of the great preachers of the fourth century, John Chrysostom. He said, we're not going to explain everything lest you become lazy. And so I'd encourage you to to get into the story um, for yourself. What I'm talking about today, the title of my message is the gospel to the needy. And now I'm aware that um, um, if we're to take a survey Not many of us here would want to be called needy or thought of or even come across as being needy. In fact, um, this title, the gospel to the needy, for many of us, it it kind of reaffirms uh, Karl Marx's uh, remark that religion was the opium of the masses, that, oh, yeah, this is is it again. This This is what we don't need in Africa. In fact, it can uh, come across as being patronizing. But if you're familiar with the stories of the Bible, this message or this title shouldn't come across as a surprise because some of our greatest and most beloved stories of the Bible are of people who are in need. We know Abraham and Sarah who in their old age needed to have a child. We know the story of the Israelites who were living under oppression and racial segregation and discrimination and needed to be rescued. Friends, from the beginning of the Bible to to the end of the story, the beginning of the human story, right to its consummation, God is a God of the needy. He's a God who cares for and works amongst the needy. I watched a a recent video. Um, I I like to follow the news and see what's happening in the country. And this one was of uh, D.P. Ruto. And he was speaking in a church. And he was just explaining, uh, for those of you who are familiar, his bottom-up approach. uh, What I like to call hustlenomics. I don't know if that'll catch on. And he was just saying, uh, well, people have been asking, where does this bottom-up approach come from? And then he says, it comes from the Bible. And he quoted this verse from Psalm 113, verse 7. He, that is God, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. That is the rubbish dump. And he said that's what his bottom-up approach is all about. Now, you'll be glad to know that my purpose today is not to analyze Uh, the good DP's economic policies. But I want to highlight and pick out the scriptural truth that is in that verse that God cares for and works amongst the needy. In fact, no one embodied this more in all of scripture than Jesus himself, 
when he came and arrived on the scene, when he was declaring what we might call the manifesto, the message of what he was about, he declared that God's spirit was on him to bring good news to the poor. That is the needy. And another time when he, when he, was, he was teaching about what it means to, to be a follower who follows him, he pronounced a blessing and said, blessed are those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is God's righteous rule on earth. And finally, before he went away, what we might call his public mic drop, he told the story in Matthew chapter 25 of the sheep and the goats. And he said that from that time on to the time he returned, he was to be found in the sick, the hungry, the naked, and the prisoners. Because God is a God who is for and works amongst the needy. So if you're here today or you're watching online and you find it difficult to express your need, you, you find it difficult to express your need for physical healing or emotional or mental healing, you find it difficult to, to express your need for God to come in to your difficult relationships, to, to come in to, to your business, your, your work situation, come in to your family. Maybe you find it difficult to express your need for forgiveness for all the wrong that you've done. You find it difficult to, to come and ask for a new start in life. I want you're in the right place. Because God is a God who cares for and works amongst the needy. So we're picking up our story in Acts chapter 9. We'll be reading from verse 32 to 43. And I thought it worthwhile to look at two characters that we meet in the story and we'll meet nowhere else in Scripture. A man by the name of Aeneas and a lady by the name of Tabitha or Dorcas. And we'll pick up the story of Saul as we go along. And I'll start just by reading from verse 32. And it says that, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, just as an aside, Luke gives us these details of, of people, uh, names, and, and places, because the original recipients of this book would have been able to, to follow up if they so happened to be in Lydda or they knew someone from the area. They could ask, hey, have you, have you heard about Aeneas? Is it, is it really true? What happened? And it's important that we highlight that because the Christian faith is based on facts, not fiction. We might be 2,000 years removed from this situation, but it's still of historical accuracy. Now, this story is given an example of some of the things that were happening 
When the apostles were now taking the message beyond Jerusalem, you recall uh, the uh, act start with Jesus saying, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uh, to the ends of the earth. And we saw how they came from Jerusalem uh, through Philip and went into Samaria. And now we, we see them going beyond that uh, with Paul becoming a disciple. That kind of uh, gives the prologue to the whole big story. And we see Peter going through the regions of Judea. And as he was going through the regions of Judea, he comes uh, to a place called Lydda. And then he meets with believers. We don't know how the church had come about. We're not sure if Aeneas was a believer, whether they, he met him during the context of a church meeting or he met him out in the streets. But what we do know is what Aeneas' situation was. And Luke summarizes it succinctly in, in one sentence that he was bedridden. For eight years, because he was paralyzed. Aeneas was literally down and maybe out. Now, Luke gives us this brief detail of the length of his paralysis, not because he's just trying to fill in the historical story or he's a doctor who's dispassionately uh, giving the prognosis and the diagnosis of this patient, but he's showing us that Aeneas is not just a statistic, but he was a, a real man who had suffered real pain for eight years. This is not the first time that Luke goes into the detail of the length of uh, someone's condition. We find in Luke, in his first volume, Luke chapter 8, verse 43, he tells us the story of a woman who had had menstrual bleeding nonstop for 12 years. And he then goes on to explain that she had spent all her living on physicians, but still could not be healed by anyone. In Luke chapter 13, verse 10, we hear another story of a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And what's unique about this story is that she encounters Jesus on the Sabbath day, which was the day on which the Jews would not work. And so they, they didn't want people coming to Jesus for healing on that day. But listen to Jesus' response. He says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And so while Luke doesn't give us all the details of these people's lives, what was happening around them, what it all entailed, what, what their situation brought upon them, he invites us to imagine what life was like for that woman for 12 years, going to doctor after doctor, spending all her livelihood, being cut off from the people of God because of an issue of blood. He invites us to, to imagine what the, the heart of God who, who looks at this woman who, who had been disabled for 18 years and says, what Satan's doing and would you prevent her from finding healing because it's a Sabbath day? And when we come to Aeneas, we, we must think about what these eight years had been like, being paralyzed, bedridden, in an agrarian society, 
Aeneas couldn't take care of himself. He couldn't provide for himself financially. Aeneas had to rely on other people to take him from point A to B. His relationships would have been likely strained, seen by others around him as a, as a burden and an inconvenience. We're not told whether he was married, whether he could have enjoyed that kind of relationship. We're not told of his financial status. But Proverbs tells us that even the friends of the poor shun them. And I worked with a quadriplegic friend for a number of years and witnessed firsthand the hardships that he faced daily. But not only does Luke want us to imagine the suffering and the hardship and the need that Aeneas was in, he also wants to let us know that God was not ignorant of Aeneas' suffering. It's, it's inscribed God-breathed, inspired scripture that God knew Aeneas' situation. And I'm not sure what your need is this morning, but I want to assure you that God is not ignorant of your need. God is not ignorant of, of what it's like, the, the difficulty of, of living with disability in a world where you can face daily discrimination. How many of us followed the Olympics? Okay, a few hands going up. How many of us are following the Paralympics? Okay, some hands going up who didn't follow. I, I'm not sure, but he's Dutch. I think he's telling the truth. Friends, God is aware of the challenges that you're facing day to day. God is aware of the challenges of raising your children on your own as a single parent. God is aware of the challenges of living with HIV in a world where you face stigma. God is aware of the challenges of trying to make ends meet in a difficult economy. God is aware of the challenges of being raised in a, in a broken household. Why? Because God is a God who cares and works amongst the needy. Listen to what David said when he was going through a particularly difficult, hard, and painful time in his life. We read from Psalm 56, 56 verse 8. It says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And what David is saying is that when I can't sleep at night, when, when I'm thinking of my, my difficulty, my the persecution I'm suffering from Saul and, and being far from home, you know exactly what I'm going through. When, when I can't sleep at night because uh, my bills, are, they're not paid, uh, month end is coming and, and rent is not paid. God, you're aware of what I'm going through. When, when I'm, I'm tossing because of whatever situation there is in my life, Lord, you're not far removed, you're not distant, just as, as Emma was sharing but you're right there. Not only that, David says, you, you've seen every tear that I've cried. And I know there's some who think, well, real men don't, don't cry. Take it from a giant slaying lion and bear fighting man. 
that sometimes even the toughest of men cry. And David says, God, you know. All my tears you've put in your bottle. It's not that you're just a mess of people. We're not just a mess of people before God and he kind of just takes us collectively, but each of us individually, he knows. And friends, we need to remind ourselves of these truths because the devil and the world would like us to think otherwise. You know the expression, don't beat a man when he's down? That's exactly what the devil loves to do. To come to us when, when we're down. And I can just imagine him. How he would tempt Aeneas. During those eight years. Like, Aeneas... You're paralyzed because you deserve it. You deserve it. You know, God doesn't care for you. Why else would you be paralyzed? Why else would something like that happen to you? And yes, it's been, it's been eight years. This is never going to change. This is the rest of your life. This situation is never going to change. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares for you. That's why you're in this situation. In fact, Aeneas, if you want relief from this, the best is just to end your life. And friends, before we rush to judge what Aeneas may or may not have thought, let's look back at our own lives. In those times of difficulty, in those valleys, when we are faced with that need, when it seems like we've prayed and God hasn't answered. How do we respond? I remember just last year going through a particularly difficult time. And before that, I wouldn't have associated myself or thought of myself as somebody who had self-pity. But it became so obvious to me. And with the help of my wife, you know, guys, when, when you get married, one of the things they don't tell you, one of the things that doesn't come on the box is that your wife knows everything. I didn't know that my wife she, she's a doctor, like a medical doctor. She can diagnose. Like if I say, hey, I, I'm not feeling well, she'll diagnose me and then she'll offer me a remedy. She's also a psychologist, able to see why I'm thinking what I'm thinking. But she also helped me to see that I was, I was really feeling sorry for myself. And I've got many reasons. The way that I grew up, the way things have happened... I'm from a country where in the space of 10 years we changed currency twice. Life savings gone, just like that. Not once, but twice. Ravaged by HIV. I've been to see 
the graves of uncles and cousins that I never got to know because of the HIV scourge. Beyond that, there's things that have happened in my own personal life. And so I could say I had great reason to feel sorry for myself. But friends, when faced with seemingly inconquerable situations, when faced with that pain, with that suffering, with our great need, when faced with the apparent silence of God, how are we to respond? Do we wallow in self-pity? Looking at our situation and, and regretting life? Become disappointed, bitter, expect nothing from God? Well, let's hear how David responded in the very following verses of the same psalm. He says, My enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know, God is on my side. I praise God for what he has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what he has promised. Friends, when faced with the apparent hopelessness of our need or our situation, we need to turn to God's promises. When nothing else is going for us, when it seems that nothing else is on our side, we need to remind ourselves that if God is for us, who can be against us? When it feels like God is doing nothing in our situation today, we need to remind ourselves of what God has done in the past and of what God has said he would do. Because if he has done it before, he's able to do it again. And if he has said it, he will fulfill it. Listen to what Numbers 23, 19 says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said and will he not do it? Has he not promised and will he not fulfill it? And this morning, I'm aware that you might be here or listening online and you're faced with insurmountable need. The bills are piling up. Your health is deteriorating. That relationship is deteriorating. Your business looks like it's completely gone. In fact, it is gone. But I want to remind us that there is one anchor that will never fail us. Family, friends, health, money, everything might, might disappear. But this one thing, that is the faithfulness of God. And so we need to anchor ourselves on his promises. And so I want to ask you this morning, what are you anchored on? When, when the storms of life come, when faced with, with your need now, what is it that you're anchored on? And I want to humbly and respectfully ask, have you ever or even now, do you believe in the promises of God? Do you believe that you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living? That, that, that God is able to heal? Do you, do you believe that he's able to provide? 
Do you believe that his, his purposes for your life are good? Friends, do you, do you believe? And I want to give us all an opportunity to respond, to take time to reflect on this, to think upon his promises, to think upon where we are, to see if there's any bitterness or resentment or disappointment that we've led to fester in our hearts and to re-anchor ourselves in the promises of God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few verses from Isaiah and then I'm going to give us some time in silence. And in that time, I just want you to reflect for yourself, to look on your life, to look where you are now and see whether you are anchored, whether you believe in these promises. So I'll read from Isaiah 35, from verse 3 to 6. It says, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. I'll give us an opportunity just to reflect on these promises. I'll just carry on. <clears throat> now, while it is true that the promises that we have read and many of the promises of Scripture will only be completely fulfilled and consummated when Christ returns, yet in the story of Aeneas, we see that even now, the wonderful promise of the lame, the crippled, rising up and leaping. We can see it fulfilled in our day. Because when God sent Christ onto the earth, his rule, the rule that he has promised to right all wrongs, to bring justice, to bring restoration to all that was in, in decay, broke in to the present age. And so Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Hebrews says that we are those who have tasted of the powers of the age to come. 
And so while we do look forward to the glorious return and know that everything will be restored when Christ comes, now we live with the longing to see his kingdom come, to see his righteous rule expressed, to see the will of heaven expressed on earth today. And, and I love how Peter speaks to Aeneas and says, Aeneas, he doesn't say, I heal you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you and is speaking in the present continuous tense that this Jesus who we proclaim that is raised from the dead is still at work today. And Aeneas, look, this Jesus Christ is present and even in my speaking is healing you now. Rise up, take up your mat. And friends, we, we, we need to be a people who are able to hold on to both. First, the reality of the hope that cannot be taken away, that Jesus is returning and is going to restore all things. But we also need to be a people who are grasping for the coming age and saying today, Lord, would you express that rule in this moment, in this need now, because God is a God who cares for and works amongst the needy. And I know as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been, we've been seeing so many acts of, of power and, and miracles and signs and wonders. And it's not just an expression of, of God's might and power, even glorious as that is. It's also an expression of his heart and his compassion to come right into our need where nothing else can help, where, where, where there's no other solution. He says, Aeneas, it's been eight years, but today this is the last day. He says, enough is enough. He is the one who gave the boundary to the seas and said, thus far you can come and go further. And he's a God who acts within our need, within our situation to say, enough is enough. Now is the time to act. I am bringing healing. I'm bringing deliverance. I'm bringing a change. And so we need to be a, a people both who look forward to the glorious return of Christ and today who proclaim a living, working Christ. Because God is a God who cares for and works amongst the needy. For those who like points, that was my first point. You'll be glad to know I've only got two points and the second one is very brief. We'll just read from Acts chapter 9, verse 36 to 43. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon. Atena. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, we can see that an, a great miracle has occurred. A woman has been 
resuscitated from the dead. Uh, reading one commentary, he just made that uh, distinction between resurrection and resuscitation. I thought it was pretty cool. That she's been raised to life again. And what we see in that is that there's no need too great. There's no bondage too strong, no, no addiction. You might have been an alcoholic for decades. There is no relationship too far gone. You might not have spoken to your children or your brother or your sister in years. There is, there is no illness that is too great. It, it might have come, my, my dad had diabetes, his granddad had diabetes. If this woman can be raised from the dead, there is nothing that God cannot do. Yet the point that I wanted to make was that we see this context. The miracle occurs in the context of serving the needy. And the point I want to make, the last point of my message, is that if God cares for and works amongst the needy, so should we. We learn of Dorcas. The story is remarkable because it's, it centers on a woman and Luke often wants to do this, to, to have a story of a man and then to have a story of a woman. Many think that the Bible is misogynistic, has got a low view of women, but when we come into the Bible, we see the status of women raised far above the context of the present day and their culture. Not only does he give us the story of Dorcas, he, he shows how she was wonderfully active in the church and the story of the church from, from its inception. In fact, the story of God's redemptive action in humanity is filled with the stories of many women. And we see this Dorcas serving both with skill and with great sacrifice, the widows. And I'm aware that among us today, we've got many Dorcases. Many who are serving sacrificially, serving with, with great skill. And I want you to know that your labor is not in vain. God's eye and God's hand is upon what you're doing. But you see, because we do good things, it doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to us in life. Dorcas, people will be asking, oh, man, she was, she was such a sweet lady. She was so good. How, how could she fall sick and die? You know, if, if there's a God, how can, how can people like Dorcas be falling sick and dying? But friends, that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is God finds us, God loves us, and he sends us. And in that, we'll have peaks and valleys. But whether we are on the highest peak or the lowest valley, God is with us.
because he cares for and works amongst the needy. Now, as I close, I believe, or I just want to challenge us. I want to challenge you. What is your heart for the needy? Do you see God's heart to care for and work amongst the needy? Will you come alongside God? Will you co-labor with him? Will you put your hand, so to speak, to the plow? Will you reorder your priorities? Friends, this is in our DNA as a church. This is, this is part of who we are as one tribe. This is why we, we've got the Haki ministry. This is why Simba was sharing about the Deaf Awareness Week that's coming up. Because we want to co-labor with God wherever he's working and God cares for and works amongst the needy. Now, as I close, I just want to play a short video. This is a, a video of a prophetic word that was brought at a conference that our family of churches to host in Brighton, in the UK. And this particular message was given in 1998 by a guy called Sam Paul. It was after a message that was titled, Remember the Poor, taken from the verse in Galatians 2 verse 10, where Paul said that the apostles had asked him to remember the poor, and he responded, that was everything he was eager to do. Last night when uh, we first met, I felt the Lord gave me a prophetic picture that goes with this word that Simon just shared. I saw a mighty uh, outpouring of anointing coming down upon his people, just like a, there was huge black clouds and it was like just an outpouring of rain, just a huge outpouring of rain. And I, I knew it was a release of a new anointing upon oh the people of God. And I, in that moment, I was saying, Lord, are you going to do that here in these meetings? And he indicated to, to my spirit that it really wasn't something that would happen right in these meetings, but it would come as we reach out and begin to take steps to undo the heavy burdens of the poor. And I believe that the prophecies that have been coming in recent months concerning a mighty release of the miraculous and signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit coming upon the people of God, not just in renewal, but in mighty demonstrations that will touch nations, is going to come within a context of reaching out and extending our souls to the poor and to those that are bound and those that are afflicted. And within that context, there's coming a mighty outpouring of the presence of the Lord upon the people to do exploits and to do mighty demonstrations of power and show forth His glory 
And it's as though his glory will literally follow us as we reach out. We must take the step, but as we take the step, his glory will be a rear guard. It will follow us.